Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Jim Lance, and I'm the podcast host for discussions of books in African studies, as well as books on the Global South in general, and economic and political development. Today, I'm really pleased to have as my guest Todd Cleveland, Assistant Professor of History at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. I'll be talking with Todd today about his book, Stones of Contention, A History of Africa's Diamonds. I'll give this information again but full and complete information about the book is available on the Ohio University Press and Swallow, Ohio University and Swallow Press website, Todd's publisher. The URL for that is www.ohioswallow.com. That's www.ohioswallow.com. And um, I encourage you to visit the website after our discussion to learn, out, to learn more about Todd's book. Um, welcome, Todd. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, before we get to your book in general, I just want to say I was really, really, really uh, impressed by its how well written it is and engaging. Um, Thanks. And the narrative and the narrative thrust of the book is really uh, compelling, and it's a subject that has attracted a lot of attention, as your book calls uh, brings out in both. Uh, film, and other media outlets. But So before we begin talking about your book in particular, could you please just tell us a little bit about how you became interested in African studies, uh, your, your background that led you to pursuing your interests, and then specifically how you became in, interested in diamonds and writing about diamonds? Sure. Um, gosh, how far back should I go here? Uh, my interest in African studies is rooted in, uh, originally my interest in European um, European history. Um, when I was a master's student at the University of New Hampshire, I started working with Doug Wheeler, uh, who worked on the, uh, works on the Portuguese colonial empire. Um, and so gradually I transitioned from being essentially a European colonial historian to an African historian as I became increasingly interested in the African perspective of the colonial encounters. Um, in particular, a trip to Guinea-Bissau in West Africa in 1997 um, was uh, constituted a sort of pivotal moment. My sister was a Peace Corps volunteer there, um, and I just uh, had a wonderful trip, as many people describe um, their first visits to Africa. They were bitten by the African bug, um, and from that point on, I knew I wanted to focus on Africa rather than uh, any sort of European history or European studies. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the origins of my interest in um, African history in general or African studies. Uh, the diamond um, dimension to all this came about a bit later as a PhD student at the University of Minnesota. I was um, interested in pursuing um, a topic in labor history, wanted to stay within the Lusophone world, um, and so identified Africa, or Africa, rather, Angola, uh, as a place to, uh, on which to focus. And there was, um, as some listeners may know, there was a, a protracted civil war in Angola that lasted roughly from 1974, 75 until uh, 2002. And so 
among other things, among other tragic things, um, that precluded um, a lot of scholarly research or historical research in particular in the country. And so there was an array of topics um, available in a way to researchers that would have been uh, pretty thoroughly combed through in other settings. And so there was, um, I was turned on to the um, uh, Compagnie de Diamantes d'Angola, which is the Angola, essentially the Angolan Diamond Company, uh, which was a monopolistic um, corporation operating in Angola roughly from 1917 until uh, 75, and even past 75, actually, into the early 80s, although it was a, a shell of its former self by then. Um, and this was an exciting topic. This was just uh, something that no one had ever worked on, even though upwards of a million um, Angolans and other Africans um, toiled on the mines over the, the roughly six decades that the company was in existence. And so uh, the next sort of set of formidable challenges were, were largely logistical, um, sort of how to get out to the diamond mines, how to identify former mine workers, so on and so forth. But that's that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the genesis of my interest in, in Africa's diamonds. Um, so it was purely Angolan originally, of course, of course, historiographically, I had to understand the sort of broader context, the Southern African mineral context. Um, but my, my, my interest in Africa's diamond started in Angola, certainly. Hmm. Well, that, uh, that leads us to like a segue into your book itself. And as I said, one of the things I found compelling about the book, um, to me, it's not only... A, a book about diamonds in Africa, it's as much a book about perceptions of what Africa is. Uh, and with that thought of mine, I was taken by your title, uh, Stones of Contention. Um, to me, stones imply something that does, really, does not have any real intrinsic value, and so why would there be contention? So what, what brought you to come to that title, and why are these stones contentious? <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, originally, if I if I remember correctly, the working title was uh, "Turning Over Stones." I think we were just looking for a synonym for diamonds. Actually, um, the idea was that we were going to really delve into the the wide array of human experiences that go uh, sort of underexamined in histories of uh, diamonds uh, in Africa, which has more of a sort of an industrial focus. Um, Stones of, we, we settled on stones of contention eventually because um, sort of at every turn, um, uh, going back to the discoveries in South Africa in the middle uh, of the 19th century, um, these stones or these diamonds always seemed to be at the heart of some sort of contention. Um, there were very few sort of um, orderly or peaceful instances in which stones would, these diamonds, diamond deposits would be discovered um, and then be some sort of ensuing um, cooperation or collaboration or, or peaceful um, extraction of the stones. But at every turn, there seems to be some sort of contention or some sort of tension or violence in, in many cases. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the origins of the title. Um, yeah, I mean, so it, it, we, what we did, we lost in the, in the transition um, from the original working title to this title was this um, was this emphasis on the, the, this wide array or range of human experiences associated with the extraction of diamonds. Um, but I think the, the contention uh, component of the title really does capture um, what's uh, what sort of what the narrative is is, re is capturing and reflecting over the course of the chapters. And that's not to imply that it's a you know that's sort of this incessant uh, violence um, that's been going on for 150 years. Of course, as you know, you've read it. Um, there's some much more optimistic uh, sections <laughs> um, than that, but it did seem to be reflective of, of much of the book's contents. Yeah, we'll get to the optimistic points, I hope, <laughs> later on. Um, but I would like 
to focus a bit on the notion of violence and contention a bit more. Um, another thing that really impressed me by your book was uh, how you interwove uh, popular culture, especially Western uh, or Northern, if you want to call it that, pop perceptions of Africa, particularly the, new, the movie Blood Diamonds. And why has that? Why do you think that's became such a big box office hit? And how do you think your book both counters and reinforces reinforces um, stereotypical notions of Africans as violent and backward that certainly came to the fore in the movie. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, diamonds are, are such a sort of fascinating uh, entity in a way. I mean, they're so um, recognizable. They're, they're, they're sort of a part of uh, so many people's lives, even if it's solely um, related to an engagement ring or something that a grandmother passes down to a mother and so on and so forth. Um, there's a there's an exotic dimension to diamonds as well. As you indicated, they have no tr intrinsic value. So this this notion of them uh, being so endowed with such value is also intriguing. If you sort of stop to think about that as well, of course, this notion of blood diamonds or this this phenomenon feeds notions of um, uh, feeds notions of Africa as a sort of inherently violent place. So it's it's reinforcing a narrative um, with which people are, or a misperception with which people are already familiar. Um, I, I think that, so in some respects, I mean, the book does, um, I mean, the book's not necess necessarily corrective, but it, it is when I think it, it needs to be. I think that um, what I do over the course of the book is, is um, implicate so many other individuals, countries, uh, leaders of foreign countries, so on and so forth, that although Blood Diamonds geographically was an African problem, uh, there were so many other individuals involved in this, in this process, external players um, that uh, played important sort of contributory roles in either sparking or deepening uh, these, these blood diamond crises on the continent. And ultimately, there were some uh, important players who, who intervened to uh, institute the Kimberley process, which in effect uh, stemmed the flow of, of, of blood diamonds. Um, so that there's an external story that's just as important um, in, this, in this sort of broader narrative of blood diamonds. And so I think that um, if we understand that this was a, a sort of a collaborative effort, um, it takes some of the, it redirects some of the attention away from Africa, um, even though geographically it remains largely, or it was a largely African problem. Right. Well, that that's another thing I really I'm glad you brought that out that point out because that's another thing that really struck me, uh, how really unfair it is that Africa itself has been solely attributed the blame for for the violence and avariciousness uh, yeah. that's taken place and the, you bring to the fore a number of external actors. Um, I don't think you can understand the history of Africa's diamonds without placing them in a global context. I, mean, right. I think that's, that's imperative. Well, since the book starts out with perceptions, how did Africa become, in Western perceptions, this place of untapped and unlimited wealth? Mm. And how does that relate, again, to the issue of diamonds? Sure. Um, again, there's a, there's a chapter dedicated in the book um, to the, the sort of origins and genesis of, of these external notions of, of Africa as a treasure trove. Um, mm -hmm. And some of them are founded. Uh, most, are, most of them are unfounded, let's put it that way. Um, but these, these, these go back thousands of years, long predating the, the discovery of diamond deposits in South Africa. And so there's always, um, I shouldn't say always, but for, for millennia there's been a notion that Africa's sort of this, has been an untapped treasure trove, a mineral treasure trove. 
Um, and there are instances, instances of um, uh, these perceptions that are, that are extant in writings from the Middle East, from um, the Far East, uh, from Europe as well. Um, one of the myths that sort of perpetuated or deepened this notion was the myth, the myth of Prester John, um, this legendary mythical Christian king who, uh, again, allegedly, supposedly oversaw um, an empire that was um, as wealthy as it was powerful, and that was eventually located um, in the, uh, what's now Ethiopia at one point. Um, so these further fed uh, eager, um, zealous individuals from uh, well beyond Africa's borders to seek treasures, um, to more aggressively seek these treasures on the continent. Um, there are just any number of myths that that I sort of outline in the book that 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 fed these misperceptions going all the way into the 19th and 20th centuries, um, and you could argue perhaps today still as well. Um, so this has been a long uh, process. Um, this has been something that um, outsiders have. Um, this has been a way that Africa has been perceived or misperceived um, for long, long periods of time, uh, well before, again, well before the discovery of diamonds. <laughs> when, were the di- when were diamonds discovered, and uh, how did they become objects of value? Because that you also spend a goodly portion of your book talking about the processes of discovery, uh, how diamonds are shaped into commodities of value, sure. their uses, and um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, diamonds are discovered in, I mean, the, sort of that these original diamond deposits are discovered in South Africa rather innocently um, in the 1860s, um, in, in the first instance, allegedly, um, by a boy who sort of, you know, casually picks up a stone and, you know, three conversations later they find out that it's an actual diamond, a reasonably well, a good-sized diamond. Um, from here, as you might imagine, uh, things begin to spiral out of control. This comes at a, at a particularly sort of propitious time because just at this point, the diamond deposits in Brazil are, are becoming largely exhausted. Um, and so that there's a there's sort of a global um, uh, shortage of diamonds, if you will, um, Again, they'd, they'd have no value at this point, really. This is well before they're being used for industrial purposes. Um, so it's a shortage, maybe, a, may not be the, the most accurate way to describe um, the supply at that point. Um, but there's a, there's sort of a, a logical transition from Brazil to South Africa, um, relatively seamless. I mean, it's, it's almost literally just the, the Brazilian supply. Uh, again, the the value that's bestowed on the stones is something that that predates the the African discoveries. Um, so going well back into into time, uh, millennia, in fact, um, for aesthetic reasons, um, almost almost solely, uh, diamonds have been perceived as having value uh, by different communities uh, all over the world. Um, so this isn't exclusive to Europeans or Asians or Africans for that matter. In fact, Africans bestowed no value uh, on diamonds to the extent that they even knew they were there. Um, and so over time, uh, there's a, almost immediately there's a rush to South Africa, um, analogous to the rush, the gold rush in the United States and Canada um, that, that preceded this particular rush by only about two decades or so. And you see many of the same characters show up in South Africa, sort of rematerialize in South Africa, which is interesting. Um, there's so many parallels to these two processes. Um, and it's, I mean, it's sort of a longer history, but eventually they find, um, the mother loads, if you will, these very, very rich deposits, very close to where the original stones were found. 
Um, and this becomes sort of the heart of the African diamond industry and um, to a certain extent remains that not the geographical heart necessarily because that's moved to Botswana, though not too far away, but De Beers is still um, there's sort of a long history here as to how De Beers uh, takes over and then eventually Anglo-American takes over. Um, but nonetheless, it's still anchored. The company, the corporate entity is still anchored in Southern Africa and South Africa in particular. While you're mentioning De Beers, um leads me to my next question. Um, how did De Beers become such a prominent player in the global diamond industry? Sure. Well, we could talk for hours about this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, one man's vision to a certain extent, Cecil Rhodes, um, had the presence of mind to realize that these were going to be extremely important, extremely valuable discoveries. And so came to, I mean, he didn't come to South Africa from England as a rich man. Um, but made a, a series of, of very um, prudent decisions, um, and it would be hard to argue that, you know, for all of his um, faults, perhaps, that he wasn't a visionary in this respect, um, because he really saw something that obviously others didn't. And again, he wasn't uh, blessed with a great deal of um, initial capital. He, he continued to, he started out very small. Um, over time, I mean, subsequent to um, Rhodes' death, um, De Beers, as a corporate entity, made some poor decisions and opened the door for Anglo-American, which was uh, eventually run by Oppenheimer, um, to come in and actually take take control over De Beers. And uh, Anglo-American only retained the De Beers name uh, for marketing purposes, essentially, because it was already a well-established company. So uh, in many respects, De Beers would have a very short corporate history, um, roughly... You know, decade, we'd be talking a matter of decades here, um, had Anglo-American not decided to retain the name or, or retain De Beers as a subsidiary. So this uh, may well have been a company we wouldn't be talking about at all um, in this day and age. Um, but nonetheless, um, whether we want to call it De Beers or, or some sort of corporate entity or subsidiary within the Anglo-American um, corporate uh, umbrella, um, they made a series of extremely aggressive uh, moves to monopolize control of the diamond supply um, and ultimately demand, um, which is really where the, the genius lies for me. Um, uh, very aggressive, very ruthless corporate measures um, to make sure that they controlled the supply of diamonds. Um, very heavy-handed tactics in many respects. One of the interesting um, aspects of their approach to supply is that they never prospected. They never wanted to find new sources of diamonds because, of course, that would uh, undermine this notion that, that this, this misperception that diamonds are rare. Of course, they're not, in fact, rare at all. It's just that De Beers was stockpiling most of them and only, only releasing to the market a very small percentage of them, um, thus rendering them rare, at least for purchase. Um, later on, there were a number of other competitors. Um, diamonds started to be discovered in places that De Beers had no um, historical connection to, and so there was a, a point at which De Beers was simply unable to control the supply, but that comes much, much later. That's a very sort of recent part of history, and De Beers has had to sort of retool, um, reconsider its its business model, um, and they've done an effective job um, with that as well. Uh, but it's a really, really interesting corporate history, and I try to uh, take the reader through some of that, although there are, some, there are certainly some books out there that are dedicated exclusively to De Beers, and, and, and all very good. Well, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the sort of nickel knowledge type additions to your book. Like, I had no idea about the provenance of a diamond is forever yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the impact upon that, for example, upon the Japanese market. Yeah. 
So, yeah, the, the, the manipulation of supply is really, or demand rather, is really one of the remarkable parts of their their sort of corporate story. Um, just the, the almost the manufacturing of demand. Um, for example, when there were stones found in in Siberia um, following the Second World War, they were all, of course, the beers rushed to to um, uh, to sort of seize control of of this new supply that was coming online. And uh, but many of the smoke, many of the stones, although reasonably high quality, were small. And so what the beers did um, rather quickly was um, create uh, pieces of jewelry that utilized these small uh, stones, these sort of high quality small stones. And then, of course, very carefully, very strategically, paid the stars of the day um, to be adorned in these at particular public events. And then within almost overnight, you had a new market created for something that never existed previously. And so every everybody in the United States wanted to have these new pieces of jewelry that featured a series of small stones as opposed to one big stone. So um, overnight, they were able to, um, not overnight necessarily, but I mean, within a very short period of time, they were able to manipulate demand um, such that they had a new market for these stones that they otherwise wouldn't have had anything really to do with. Um, in the past, so really, again, they're, they're, that sort of corporate model, or they, that their sort of approach to manipulating demand, is is every bit as interesting as it is. Uh, their efforts to manipulate supply and the diamond is forever slogan is also a, an interesting story um, that comes out of a uh, 1947 uh, slogan coined by an advertising agency in New York City um, called NWA or and Son. This is at a point when De Beers was not welcome into the United States, and so they were dealing sort of um, uh, with an ad agency, but the ad agency would have, actually have to come to South Africa periodically to interact um, directly with the exec, uh, De Beers executives. Um, so this is something that's created um, in a way that's independent of sort of De Beers' direct involvement. Um, and, but they quick, the company, of course, quickly picks up on this as a motto. But it's so much more than a motto because it, it again, sort of manipulates the way diamonds are bought and sold. Because now the idea is that you should never forget, you should never, um, you should never uh, resell in a way the diamond. I mean, it has to be passed on from generation to generation to generation. And, uh, there's there's been some interesting articles written about uh, the used diamond market, how you pay so much. Or a diamond, but it has so little value on the used market, and that's because consumers perceive it to be sort of tainted. Um, that you, you know, there's no, you couldn't imagine buying a used diamond for your loved one. I mean, that would be so dishonest, and uh, uh, <laughs> that would be a slap in the face. Exactly, which is of course <laughs> absurd because nobody can tell whether a diamond's been worn. I mean, uh, you know, but again, this goes back to the sort of marketing genius. There's a there's a book that came out recently called The Engagements by Courtney Sullivan. Uh, which I confess I own but have not read yet. Um, that sort of historical fiction kind of takes you through this whole history of how the the slogan was was coined. Um, and the, there was actually a woman who who um, coined the slogan Francis Garrity, um, and how she sort of struggled under the glass ceiling for years, even after um, creating this, this this slogan that's been so durable. So interesting stuff. Well, we've talked about the development of diamonds from the top but another thing about your book is it's a wonderful wonderfully evocative and detailed uh, analysis of the work process itself so how did Africans obviously the beers could not have succeeded without African labor sure. so what was the labor process and how did Africans become involved initially I, another thing that really struck me is initially Africans were um, involved in the prospecting business and the boom 
not exactly on a, on a on an equal level with the the white prospectors, but they definitely had some input. But then they quickly became subservient and marginalized uh, in terms of reaping the benefits from the diamond industry. But they certainly were instrumental in harvesting the diamonds. So what's the labor process? How did Africans become uh, positioned the way they seem to have been positioned? Sure. Um, I think that you're referring to South Africa, where so quickly the Africans were involved, perhaps not as, right, South Africa, yeah, not yeah. as necessarily as, an e- as equal partners in this process, but um, certainly as viable um, actors in this, in this history and uh, prospecting and working their own claims, purchasing their own claims and working those um, either in conjunction with other Africans or sometimes alone. Um, yeah, and so quickly they become marginalized in this process. It has a lot to do with the presence um, of a number of white miners, um, white rushers in a way. They're not even sort of formal mine workers yet um, who converged upon the diamond deposits in South Africa. And then, of course, this is all set against the layer of uh, or also rather a backdrop of, of uh, race, racialism or racism. Um, and so quickly they identify that there are too many um, labors, too many small claims. So what what's originally a business decision becomes um, heavily infused with sort of racist notions of the day. Um, and so the whites need to prevail in this scenario. And the white, generally most of the, the, the white um, individuals involved in this process um, or at least some of them have have more capital uh, available to them, and so quite quickly they realize that this this whole process needs to be industrialized. They need to move away from um, shovel mining, essentially, um, on these small claims with um, using sort of very inefficient methods. And of course, the, there are only a handful of these um, industrialists who are well healed enough to to transition the mines from um, extremely rudimentary labor to more mechanized uh, labor. Um, and so, and over the course of this process, when you, of course you have um, you have uh, whites who are sort of pushed to the margins as well, and end up in very sort of in a way subservient positions, but appeal to uh, these sort of emerging corporate giants on racial grounds um, that they should be treated differently because they are, of course, after all, their racial brethren. And as long as there's um, as long as the African labor force um, continues to um, be available to, or sort of, as long as African workers are available to these these sort of emerging corporate giants, they're comfortable with slightly preferential treatment um, for white workers. So white workers are spared some of the the more egregious abuses, like these sort of full body searches upon entering and exiting the mines um, on each shift. And eventually, this transitions into the compound system, in which blacks are fully um, black workers are fully uh, contained. Um, within this sort of mining space, they move back and forth between a mine and a fenced, uh, in, in fact, roofed-in compound um, so that they can't escape at any moment during this whole process. And so, again, you'd have to argue that the, the sort of general transition from um, manual labor to more mechanized labor in conjunction with um, these sort of heavily racist um, sentiments and sympathies um, on within this relatively small and rapidly changing space, um, eventually shaped the way that um, shaped the, the sort of differential tr- the differential treatment that uh, whites and blacks received by these emerging companies who so quickly consolidate um, control of the mines until just De Beers ends up uh, emerging within a very very short period of time. Um, so what goes what begins as a very sort of democratic process uh, turns into a, a monopolistic process within a matter of a few decades. Um, elsewhere on the continent, I mean, 
you see this duplicated, but of course, much of this is going on once the post the Berlin Conference in 1884, 1885, and the subsequent subjugation uh, of most of, of Africa. So this is playing out in a very in very sort of similar um, environments in terms of the power relations between um, Africans and, and Europeans. Um, but of course, in the same in the same way, Africans. Uh, serve as the backbone of, of the diamond industry in Africa. The, the, the profits are made on their backs. Um, I will say, uh, and this is not to defend the diamond industry in, in Africa, but um, even during the colonial period, but vis-a-vis uh, -vis other uh, corporate entities, uh, the diamond companies tended to pay a little bit better, tended to be um, provide services, accommodations, uh, food security in ways that other companies weren't necessarily able to or willing to. Um, so the so most of the diamond um, most of the diamond uh, mining operators um, were reasonably appealing to African laborers who, of course, weren't necessarily interested in working for any uh, colonial corporate entity, um, but forced to choose because of the the tax situation, the, the taxes that the colonial powers imposed. Diamond mines were reasonably attractive uh, places to work, and they were never, um, I mean, I shouldn't say never, but in most cases, they were never lacking for African laborers, um, which is why, in many reasons, um, mechanization was forestalled, uh, because African labor was, was, African manual labor was extremely uh, inexpensive, in part due to the political economies of, of colonial uh, spaces. Um, but on the other hand, um, it provided employment for a number of people, and in, in the case of De Beers, this ends up being a reasonably good place to work, all things considered. I mean, this is uh, as you move into the apartheid period, um, which is, of course is a, is a, um, a very um, violent and inequitable period for uh, black South Africans. But nonetheless, De Beers is a place where Africans can find employment, um, perhaps better working conditions, although very challenging working conditions, of course. But um, better compensation, um, so on and so forth, than, than in some other areas. Again, this is not to suggest that these were uh, ideal spaces in which to, to earn a living, um, but nonetheless, the diamond industries, diamond companies overall um, treated their workers better in a paternalistic way in many cases um, than some of the other corporate entities uh, operating in Africa during the colonial period. I'd like to move move on a bit to um, outside of Southern Africa, uh, diamond mining and processing elsewhere, in particular Sierra Leone, which I think uh, has become the focal point for blood diamonds. How did Sierra Leone uh, get this reputation? And um, I'd like to follow up probably later with sort of discussing that in relation to the Kimberley process and processes of mechanization versus alluvial mining. Okay. But first, why is Sierra Leone sort of the ground zero of the blood diamond uh, concept and actually, in fact, in myth and reality? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, the diamond mining in Sierra Leone has a long history, and I think you'd, in order to begin to understand why um, it became sort of the epicenter of, of the blood diamond phenomenon, you'd have to go back into the colonial period and, and Relatively early on, uh, the British, um, in many respects, threw their hands up and realized that um, they couldn't control the industry in a way that it was controllable in some other places. 
You also had a number, a large number of Lebanese, um, due to longstanding sort of immigration practices into West Africa, um, who were particularly savvy and who, who identified these opportunities very early on, but always had a slightly different agenda um, than did the British, for example, or even local operators. And so the point of that is, is that you had a number of different entities operating within a single um, or reasonably expansive space, but still in a, within a single colony. Um, the stones were uh, are um, largely or almost exclusively alluvial. Um, and, and what that means is essentially there's very easy access to them. They're mostly superficial, um, which is problematic if you're trying to safeguard and control your um, these diamond resources as head of state or as a, a colonial administrator, so on and so forth. It's virtually impossible, even in today's age. And, um, and certainly it was the case decades ago. If some listeners may be familiar with Graham Greene's book, The Heart of the Matter. Um, that's, yes, yes. that's set in 1949, I believe. Um, so already you can see the, the sort of chaotic or the chaos associated with the Sierra Leonean uh, diamond fields. And so it's in many respects not surprising uh, that this this becomes such a um, an uncontrollable, violent um, scenario post independence. I mean, when the British pull out, although the British hadn't been doing much to um, to um, sort of quell. Uh, all the unrest um, in the mining regions that they were trying to benefit or profit in any way they could from the revenues that were being generated from diamonds um, and of course didn't want any sort of larger scale uh, uprising within the within the colony um, but on the other hand they didn't do a lot to um, to leave the Sierra, Le- Sierra Leonean fields in, in any sort of manageable shape um, when they decolonized um, uh, you know, the Angolan case is interesting because, of course, in Angola, Angola becomes the next sort of um, blood diamond center, um, and they have a very different colonial history. They have a monopolistic uh, company, Diamond, which I which I mentioned previously, um, with and characterized by virtually no unrest during the colonial period. It's only immediately afterwards um, that Angola's diamonds become sort of the source of or fuel. Um, the, the, the fighting um, in that setting. Um, and so you have very different um, histories, or at least colonial histories, producing essentially the same scenario, um, in large part due to the introduction of, of a great number of foreign operators, foreign players, foreign entities, but also really, really expansive um, alluvial fields that are impossible to sort of police or control. So these are some of the elements that, um, these are sort of of some of the undesirable elements. If you happen to be a a premier of state and um, want um, diamond deposits that are easily controllable and accessible um, to only a small number of people rather than to just about everyone. Um, well, that brings me to a, some, a point you raised some earlier about, uh, relatively speaking, we're talking relatively yeah. speaking, the diamond industry has been um, fairly cognizant of these inequities uh, and injustices, and this led to the Kimberley process. Could you tell us what the Kimberley process is uh, and what you think are its strengths and weaknesses and how effective has it been in um, I guess the term is cleaning the diamond yeah. industry. Sure, yeah. Um, the Kimberley process has been very controversial. Essentially, essentially what it is is it grew out of these two blood diamond um, scenarios, the Angola and Sierra Leone. The international community became increasingly aware that um, diamonds were, in fact, playing a central role in, in perpetuating or deepening these conflicts, uh, one in Angola and one in Sierra Leone. 
and um, a series of investigative reports by the United Nations and some independent entities um, were very sort of um, uh, re- revealed a great number of uh, what would illegal activity, um, international legal activity with the um, related to the the smuggling and the exit of stones um, from these um, from these respective places that were contravening. Um, policies, regulations, etc., that had been established. So the, the the idea was that they needed something more strict, more stringent. Um, and so the industry, um, along with sort of the United Nations, uh, leaders of foreign governments, um, identified that this was actually in their best interest uh, as well, because there was this um, there was always this specter of a boycott, um, analogous to the way that fur was boycotted um, in the 1980s. And into the 1990s, um, and so the diamond industry was, of course, um, extremely scared uh, about that prospect. And so they joined these sort of unlikely partners in a way, uh, joined forces along with some very, very important and very key efforts by partic- um, by some NGOs, in particular PAC Partnership Africa Canada, um, to uh, essentially formulate a system in which every stone that comes out of the ground needs to be certified. And so the idea was that each stone will be traceable as it works its way through the diamond chain and stones from particular places would not be admitted into these sort of closed uh, conduits or closed chains. Um, So very simplistic on one hand, reasonably hard to implement on the other. The Kimberley process, um, in some respects, um, and this is highly debated, its efficacy and whether it was worth all the the trouble and whether it's... um, whether it's worth maintaining, um, but nonetheless, it's perhaps arguably a, the best system we have because we don't have another one right now. Um, the, the, in many respects, the Kimberley process came along at the right time because these wars in Sierra Leone and Angola were ending uh, or just about to end. And so it, it, in some respects, it's awfully coincidental that the Kimberley process um, is implemented at a time when these, these these respective conflicts are ending, and so it looks like the Kimberley process was perhaps more effective than it was. Nonetheless, um, there were elements of it that, or aspects of the Kimberley process that did deny uh, some of the rebel groups operating in these respective scenarios access to, to funds, uh, at least through legal channels, by putting their stones um, in sort of formal, quote-unquote, clean channels. Um, of course, there were buy- many buyers um, who were willing to purchase the stones outside of these channels, but nonetheless, it made it more difficult for them. Uh, going forward, there have been some instances where the Kimberley plot process has denied individual countries the opportunity to participate in the formal diamond industry. They've been relatively rare, uh, but again, it, it, in part because the, the, the sort of signature wars um, have ended at this point. So these were sort of minor infractions. Um, in countries that that aren't major producers, Ghana, for example, um, the the problem with the Kimberley process is that the definition of, of blood diamonds um, that the Kimberley process adopted um, was extremely narrow. So it, it requires um, a rebel entity that's um, fighting an established uh, instituted government to overthrow or destabilize the government. And so, for example, the the, the most um, Currently, the biggest issue with the Kimberley process is the, is the case of Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe um, recently, there were 
relatively recently a, a large deposits discovered in Zimbabwe. And the idea is that the Kimberley process is either toothless or powerless, depending on your perspective, um, to prevent the sale of these stones um, internationally. Initially, they um, sanctioned them, uh, the Zimbabwean government, and, and uh, forbade the sale of, the, uh, of these stones. Um, but that it was quickly overturned, and, and to a certain extent, you can understand why. On one hand, um, if you read the Kimberley process strictly, um, essentially it has no authority to ban um, the Zimbabwean government from selling its stones because there's no rebel party that's u- utilizing the stones to overthrow the, uh, the Mugabe regime in this case. Um, on the other hand, of course, the Mugabe regime has been implicated um, for human rights abuses now for some time, and the idea that um, the government would be emboldened or empowered as a result of um, of the sale of these stones is a prospect that, that doesn't sit well, of course, with a number of people. I think people need to keep in perspective or keep in mind, though, that the Kimberley process can't do anything more than uh, perhaps the political process has. In other words, people who follow Southern Africa will know that um, despite Mugabe's excesses, um, there's still a strong degree of support going back to his um, days as a freedom fighter, as a liberation fighter in southern Africa to overthrow the the white regime in in what was then Rhodesia. And so if there's still a great deal of support by southern African nations um, for Mugabe, that also means there's a great deal of support by uh, diamond producing nations um, for southern Africa, as many southern, or for Mugabe, as many southern African nations are uh, diamond producing nations. So it's a little unrealistic to expect that the Kimberley process is going to single-handedly um, topple the Mugabe regime, for example, or or cut off a key uh, revenue supply um, in a way that we haven't. I mean, Mugabe's not been overthrown either domestically, I mean, internally or internationally. And so I think some of the frustration is is well-meaning and and completely comprehensible. But on the other hand, perhaps um, perhaps. Um, unfounded or unrealistic um, that the Kimberley process was going to be able to do much more than um, sort of regional or international political processes processes have been able to, or domestic for that matter. Well, that brings me to sort of winding up here. Uh, sort of the issue that yeah, it, it became clear to me that it was a, it's, it's as much a, a matter of political will as it is of enforcement. Um, you mentioned how Botswana and Namibia, for example, have a reputation for uh, being more in accordance with the Kimberley process than, say, the uh, mining operations elsewhere on the continent. I, I wonder if that's because Botswana and Namibia are largely mechanized and industrialized, whereas the alluvial and craft mining industries are much harder to control. But that being said, I really like the fact that your book ends on a relatively optimistic note. Mm-hmm. And uh, why do you have a sense of optimism about the future? And then I'm going to ask, put you on the spot because you never really answer the question that's <laughs> opened your book, knowing what you know now. And sure. <laughs> you, you can plead the fifth. Would you buy a diamond? <laughs> sure. Well, I'll have time to think about that. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly both uh, Namibia and Botswana benefit um, as a result of particular uh, historical circumstances. This is something I could walk through in the book that the deposits in Namibia weren't, or the deposits in Botswana weren't um, uncovered until after independence, so that gave the nation an opportunity to um, 
uh, to manage these these resources as it saw saw fit, and it has done so. I think you could argue very prudently. Um, in Namibia, um, Namibia didn't become an independent country um, until um, it was you know, until South Africa um, granted it essentially autonomy or independence. Um, and so, th- so there are some historical circumstances that have lended, uh, lent themselves to the success that both of these countries have had in managing their deposits. But I think in large part, you hit on the important the factors here, that these are largely mechanized operations. They're in very, very inaccessible places, in the case of Namibia, offshore, um, which, for example, uh, enabled the MPLA government in Angola uh, to fight um, against the UNITA rebels, um, arguably indefinitely. I mean, its major resource that was fueling its side of the conflict was was miles offshore, whereas UNITA was trying to protect deposits, um, much more accessible deposits um, inland. Um, I think small populations um, are are also a factor in both Namibia and Botswana. They have many, many fewer people um, that they need to keep happy um, with the revenues and the resources that they've derived from their respective deposits. Um, but you know, there's no clear-cut answer. There could have been um, very highly corrupt um, governments that had um, emerged in both these settings that um, could have managed the, their diamond resources in a very different way. Um, so there's there's no sort of formula um, that that indicates to us um, how how particular diamond resources are going to be managed by particular governments. Um, yeah, moving to your <laughs> your concluding question, perhaps. Uh, I, I think I'd say yes. Um, yes, I would buy a diamond, knowing what I know now. In part because of, in part because of the optimism that you cited, um, that I close with, which I close the book. I think the the channels. Um, I think Africa's diamonds are by and large um, clean, if you will. Um, I think the industry um, in, in many different countries has become uh, much more broadly beneficial. I think there have been historically marginalized. Um, populations such as women, for example, who are playing an increasingly important role, um, albeit still very small, uh, role in the diamond industry. Um, in South Africa, we've seen more um, black South Africans participate at higher levels um, within the industry. So uh, perhaps if you uh, came along in 2014 and took a took a peek or a look at the industry, you might not be overly encouraged, but if you think about its history, um, I think that it, I think it's heading in the in the right direction, even if only gradually. Um, so yeah, I, I I do believe that for the most part, um, if you were to purchase an African diamond, and I think consumers should be aware um, from where their diamonds come, um, and that's 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 a sort of consumer responsibility. Um, that um, that purchase is most likely going to, to benefit um, a particular African country, African community, African individual. Um, now in a way that even 20 years ago that was much less um, likely to be the case. Well, thank you very much, Professor Cleveland. I've been speaking with Professor Todd Cleveland, teaches history at Augustana College. We've been talking about his book, Stones of Contention, A History of Africa's Diamonds, published by Ohio University Press and Swallow Press. And I'll give you the URL for that again. It's www. OhioSwallow.com, one word, O-H-I-O-S-W-A-L-L-O-W. And I really encourage people who are interested in this topic to pick up Todd's book. It's well-written, it's concise, and one thing I really like, he was brave to answer the question he poses. (laughs) 
but he poses it to you, the reader, yourself. Thank you very much for your time, and um, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Jim.